What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back to the pod, friends. And today, we are going to talk about all things inflammatory bowel disease. But before we kick things off, Dad, you know how we've actually asked our listeners to send us their questions for us to answer? Obviously, nothing too individualized because we're not able to give individualized medical advice. But we actually have our first question in. Are you ready for it? Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) I think it's mainly for you. All right, so... This person remains anonymous, and the question goes, for the last two months, I've been woken up in the middle of the night about once a week with an urgency to rush to the toilet for a poo, only to realize that sometimes it is loose, but on other instances, it looked normal. Is being woken up by your gut to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night for a poo normal? What's your answer, Dad? Regarding this patient or this person, we have to ask some more questions. But what the information given, it is important that waking at the night for the poo, it's not normal. I can say if it is acute problem, it's acute uh, gastroenteritis and she cannot sleep, is okay. But for the last two months to have these problems during night. So it needs a lot of query and investigations because urgency of the bowel, it is not normal, especially to wake up in the middle of the night. And because it's been going on for two months, right? So it's been actually ongoing. Yeah, so she or he must go to gastroenterologist for complete workup throughout infectious colitis, inflammatory bowel disease that we'll talk about. And it is important not to leave it like this. Okay, don't so take any medication for it, please, unless you are fully investigated. So no self-prescription. Answer. Okay, so a quick, easy answer is no, it is not normal. And you really have to get things investigated further because it's been going on for two months. And... You mentioned things to rule out, one of them being IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, which we are going to talk about today. And actually, it's one of these topics that that was requested. Now, inflammatory bowel disease, I know we can go into such great detail, especially from the nutritional side of things. But today, I mean, or the aim of today's episode is to give people an overview of what it is, starting off with Crohn's disease. So this is going to be a two-part series next week. We'll talk about ulcerative colitis, which is the other type of IBD. But, Father, could you give us an overview of what is inflammatory bowel disease? Much about disease as well. You said, Sandra, you have to talk about for the, for the dietitian point of view, 
long talk and <laughs> <laughs> and from the gastrointestinal point of view we can talk endlessly anyway so we have to know what about inflammatory bowel disease i'll call it ibd that's for short uh, the inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic progressive inflammation of the gut and there's two major types as you said ulcerative colitis which is limited to the colon and colonic mucosa mucosa is the lining of the colon and the other type is Crohn's disease, which we'll talk about later. Crohn's disease affects any segment of the gastrointestinal tract from the mouth to the anus and involves skip lesions. Skip lesions means that we can find normal mucosa, normal lining, and then the uh, affected disease. Or this is the. And in about 10 or 15% of cases, it's very difficult to distinguish between them, especially if Crohn's disease affecting the colon. And so sometimes it is unclassified IBD, which is intermediate colitis, which we'll not talk about. We'll mainly we'll talk about Crohn's the disease two main and ones. Okay. colitis. All That's right. the definition. And what is the cause? Do we know now if there's an exact cause of developing IBD? The, the exact causes of IBD are not known, but there is factors which play a role in the developing inflammatory body. The first one is the overactive or dysregulated immune system. In other words, autoimmune disorder. You know, the immune system may respond in an exaggerated way to perceived threats like any infection or something, and they attack the digestive system, causing the inflammation of the intestine. This is number one. Number two, the gut flora. They found the people with IBD don't have the same proportion of helpful, harmful, and helpful bacteria as healthy individuals. This may cause inflammation of the gut. So this is when we talk about diversity as well. So that's one thing that we say is what we see, let's say, in people with autoimmune diseases, including inflammatory bowel diseases, having poor microbial diversity, meaning they don't have a rich and diverse inner ecosystem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the third factor is the family history. There's about 5 to 10% of people with IBD have family history of the condition. And there is general genes have been identified and they are linked to inflammatory bowel disease. But there is genetic disparity positions of for IBD. This is the main risk factors. And can you get a gen can you do genetic testing to check for IBD? Yes, definitely. It's, but we don't do it uh, as a routine clinical routine unless there is a family and or sometimes in in we want to in the trials and in studies we we do this. And in special cases we have to do some genetic testing for the uh, okay. IBD. And so these will be, let's say, the, the main, let's say, risk factors or the right. potential causes. Are there any other risk factors that we need to be mindful of in terms of developing IBD? It's definitely, there is smoking. All studies suggest that people who smoke are more likely to develop Crohn's disease than non-smokers. And the other point is the also the smoking itself worsen the symptoms in people with existing Crohn's disease. This is number one. 
and the other than the 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 age. It's mainly it affects from 15 to 30, 35 years old this range, but children are affected and it can affect the elderly as well. But this is the range of the most common is 15 to 35 years of age. Another interesting risk factor is the use of contraceptive pills. And the, the studies show the they could rise the risk factor, the risk of Crohn's disease by 24% to 50%, especially if you have certain. So the people with Crohn's who use the pill are more likely to have severe symptoms. So any female on the pills, she has to discuss this with your gastroenterologist. Or your That's gynecologist as well. And I think it comes down, I mean, just like you said, if you have a genetic susceptibility, um, dad, I think you cut out when you said genes, the word genes. So basically you could raise your risk of Crohn's disease or using the pill, being on the pill can raise your risk by 24 to 50%, especially if you have that genetic susceptibility. Do we know why? Do we know exactly why? Or is it still not that clear? It's just more of an observational. It's not very clear, but it is, is observation in the studies. Okay. How about the stress and diet and uh, non-steroidal use of... Uh, so in a sage, you mean? Yeah. The effect of Crohn's disease. They are not, they cannot as a cause, but they don't increase the risk of developing the disease, but they aggravate the symptoms. Well, I... I'm going to say yes, potentially for stress and NSAIDs, but now what we know from a dietary perspective, and this is really based on one of the most recent guidelines, which is called the ESPEN guidelines. And basically ESPEN just simply stands for the European Society for Clinical Nutrition and Metabolism. And in the most recent guidelines, they did talk about uh, risk factors. Now, the general consensus when it comes to reducing risk of IBD from a dietary perspective is having a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables. Again, we're focusing on that fiber diversity as well, one that's high in anti-inflammatory fats like omega-3 fats and low in omega-6 fats. So by following such a dietary pattern, the general consensus is that can reduce your risk of developing IBD. Now, in these guidelines as well, there was a recent recommendation for reducing the risk of IBD. It included the suggestion to reduce your intake of ultra-processed foods and emulsifiers. There's a specific emulsifier called carboxymethylcellulose because of the pro-inflammatory effects that we're starting to see. So if you're new, if people don't know what emulsifiers are, they're simply food additives that stabilize and mix ingredients that would normally separate, such as in you know oil and water. They're commonly used in a lot of processed foods that we can get off the shelves so that they can improve the texture and shelf life. So there's a ton of studies right now. I think emulsifiers have been the topic of interest. And, and what they've been doing is they've been looking at investigating the potential impact of emulsifiers on gut health, inflammation, and the development of conditions like IBD. Now, some studies suggest that emulsifiers may change our the composition of your gut microbiota or your gut microbiome, just like you said, so the gut flora, and that promote inflammation. But the 
overall evidence is still not strong enough to make definitive, you know, definitive conclusions. So generally speaking, obviously we know, you know, ultra processed foods and large amounts are probably not the most balanced approach. Um, just being mindful of that, but also looking at these food additives that we're now starting to, to really look into. Okay. Let's get into Crohn's disease. So dad, what exactly is Crohn's disease? Or maybe before we go through it, do you want us to, or, or do you want to cover some of the most common symptoms of IBD? Maybe because some of the symptoms overlap between the two types? Yes, that's that's true. That's, we, if we talk about the symptoms, there is common symptoms between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But for example, for ulcerative colitis, the diarrhea with blood and mucus is more, there's rectal bleeding. And to have bowel movement is very important symptoms. And we have to ask specifically of this because this will affect the lifestyle of the patient. He wants to urge, he wants to go to the toilet, wherever it is there. So the quality of life can yes, definitely sometimes be Sometimes they, they have not to go out or if they go out, you have to use pads or something like that. Right, so, and this is more with Crohn's, um, with the ulcerative colitis because it affects the rectum more. And these abdominal cramps, constipation, if they have proctitis in, in ulcerative colitis. And for both of them, if you got something, this sometimes impact on his or her sexual life or family life. For Crohn's disease, the diarrhea sometimes with or without blood. Abdominal pain is more and abdominal cramps more, especially after food because of the development of structures. Weight loss because of the the abdominal pain and they don't want to eat and the uh, nutrients as well and this general weakness and malaise and is more with Crohn's disease. This is when we're talking specific to your gut, so digestive symptoms. Can symptoms manifest outside of the gut when it comes to IBD? I this mean, because everything's connected. Point, Sandra, because there is extra extra intestinal manifestations of, of inflammatory bowel disease, and we can consider them as systemic problem rather than confined to the gastrointestinal tract. So they can affect the eyes, which is something called epicurides or uveitis. I want this expression is very medical. So it, it's sometimes inflammation between the inner eyelids and the white of the eye. They can have cause mouth ulcers. The liver can be affected, either steatosis, fatty liver, or gallbladder stones, or the, the biliary tract can be affected, which called scrotum cholangitis, which is more with ulcerative colitis. We can see kidney stones. If the skin might be affected as well, we something called erythema nodosum, which is a tender red pumps on the shin, and something called pyoderma gangrenosum as well. It's more ulcerative colitis. It's a rare condition, but it can affect the skin in some people. The joints can be affected as well. Could joint pain, arthritis, sacroiliitis, with inflammation of the, the sacroiliac joints and the pelvis, and sometimes affecting the blood circulation as well including metphilibitis, which is inflammation of the vessels. and There's a lot of itis it, talk that. Yeah. <laughs> itis, yeah. So itis means inflammation. means inflammation. So we have systemic inflammation going on. And it can affect the uh, 
coagulation of the blood as well. Another point before we leave the symptoms, then most of the studies showed as well that the symptoms do not always correlate with the active disease or active inflammation. So some sometimes the patient is feeling okay, but still the inflammation going on. This will we'll talk about this problem in the uh, diagnosis and management. All right. So walk us through Crohn's disease in a little bit more detail. So you mentioned that it can, it's a type of inflammatory bowel disease that can really affect any part of your digestive tract, just like you said, from mouth to anus. What else would you add to that in terms of what we need to know? We, we said about this. And the other point is Crohn's disease affect the whole thickness of the bowel wall. At the end, the ulcer colitis only superficial. So you will see the deep ulcerations affecting the thickness. And we said before that inflammation of the intestine can skip, leaving normal areas between the patches of the diseased intestine. This is some of the characteristics. The other thing in the Crohn's disease, there is types according to the site. I won't go in details because it is a bit of... Uh, confusing because it is, yeah. if it affects the, uh, uh, the ileocolitis or ileitis only, which is the small intestine only, or upper gastrointestinal uh, Crohn's. And so it really depends on the site of your gut. Yeah, and this is, okay. Site, because sometimes we need to treat according to the site and uh, personalize management of each patient and according to the type of Crohn's disease. In terms of presentation, so once you've done, or, you know, for example, you've had that person, a patient come to you with all these possible symptoms, how detailed is the diagnosis before, or like the, let's say the diagnostic procedure until you come to a conclusive diagnosis? How long would it take and what is the procedure? The point of diagnosis Sometimes we can see the patient after one or two years of going around and around. Oh, really? Can yes. it take that long? Yes, sometimes because uh, if the patient is young lady or young man and he's got abdominal pain on and off, diarrhea on and off, no bleeding, so the most come to my the mind of any professional, or not professional, any GPs or sometimes specialists or something, that it might be irritable bowel syndrome. And they go on and on and sometimes go from there to there till he got the proper my, proper diagnostic procedure. The first step of diagnosis is the history. And we go to classic as well, detailed history, and physical examination. The, the duration of the symptoms, the severity, the effect, the any family history, any dietary history, uh, what increases the symptoms, this detailed history for the for the first sitting. And physical examination is important as well. Sometimes it's completely normal. Sometimes you feel tenderness on the right iliac fossa or left iliac fossa, left, uh, I mean the uh, like for such is the, yes. the uh, lower quadrant of the abdomen, either left or right. Mm. So after completing this, and we suspect this patient 
might have filomatular disease, we have to go blood test, imaging, endoscopy, and biopsy. And stool tests that. And yeah, blood test and stool test. Blood test will go to the full blood if there is anemia, any increase in the, sometimes it's the blood test, the full blood count can show a lot of information for the anemia, for the uh, something called platelets. The, the platelets, if it is very high, it might denote uh, activity of the disease. We see the something called ESR, which is the uh, sedimentation, sedimentation rate, rate. increased as well. CRP is very important, which is uh, a phylometry marker. And we have to, to rule out some similar disease like celiac disease or something like that. This is the main blood to start with. And later on, we can go for another testing according to the patient himself. There is some serological markers, which is, we call it ASCA and ANCA. Uh, this is mainly to differentiate between ulcerative and Crohn's disease. We don't use them for screening or... Okay, uh, so that's just mainly for differentiation. Yeah, therefore, the stool, we have to go complete stool checkup. And like, uh, see any blood or ochre blood, calprotectin must be checked for. Yeah, we spoke about them in previous episodes, yeah. how calprotectin is like one of the inflammatory markers or screening tools that you can use from a stool test to check for IBD. And another point is for the, you know, we have to look for a patient as patient will be treated by another drugs which might affect the immunity. So we have to check for tuberculosis, which is sometimes is, is very difficult to differentiate between Crohn's disease and tuberculosis and intestinal tuberculosis. So we have to check for this. Check for hepatitis B to see if there is any latent or not, because later on, if we use any of these drugs, it might the latent TB might be active. And the latent hepatitis B might be activated. So we have to be careful with this. And we have to have plan for vaccination of the patient. This may be with the treatment more. This is for the provisional blood and stool testing. For imaging, we've got small intestinal imaging, like we call it MRI intrography, just to see the whole uh, small intestine. Okay. And recently, there is an ultrasound might be very helpful, might be handy, but this it is very nice and helpful and quick. Convenient. I was going to say, isn't it convenient? But doesn't that, yeah. it's quite difficult to pick things up from an ultrasound, I think, yeah, in my, terms this of... Needs, it's done by gastroenterologists, not by the radiologists. So it needs okay. expertise, training, and availability, which is, if you repair this... Uh, I, I like to have a course of this, but I don't. <laughs> the time? Do you have the time to do that? Yeah. Right. Then we come to the main mainstay of the diagnosis because we have to have a tissue diagnosis. So we have to go for Crohn's disease. As we said, we it it causes the it affects the from the mouth the to gut. the end. So we have to do upper endoscopy with biopsy and colonoscopy as well. If the MRI is not available or something, we have to have, we can do capsule endoscopy for the small intestine. But 
we have to be very careful. We have to be sure that there is no any uh, stenosis or restrictions because the capsule might be stuck there. Stuck. So we have okay. to be very careful with this. This is, of course, it will be discussed the patient with the patient and the gastroenterologist step by step. And this is the main diagnosis procedure for a patient with Crohn's disease. And maybe this is just a quick side question. Yes. How big of a percentage do you see in terms of Crohn's disease in your clinic? Let's say in the last month, <laughs> in November. No, uh, tell you, I, maybe in November I've seen about two to three patients, but in other centers we see more because in Dubai we've got now centers for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which some doctors, they are see only IBD patients. Okay, so very specialized centers. Yeah, because, you know, for dealing with this important and significant disease, I don't, uh, we have to have a multidisciplinary team. You, know, you have to have the gastroenterologist, the surgeon should be available, and the radiologist, nutritionist or dietitian, and IBD nurse as well. So a, a combination of this team will help to proper management of the patient with the inflammatory bowel disease. I agree. No, I mean, this is how we do it. I don't, I personally do not see a lot, but I do see some. I do have a lot of mainly ulcerative colitis, interestingly enough. I think I only have a small handful of Crohn's disease, um, but a lot of my patients or sorry, clients but, you know, they've they've already been diagnosed and managed with the gastroenterologist, but also it's either just like you said, symptom control or to really tweak their symptom control even better, even though they've been diagnosed with Crohn's disease for a while and, and well-managed. But the missing pillar would be diet and, and nutrition. And actually some of my clients who want to get pregnant, so that's another sort of journey that is really nice to see that quite a lot of my clients with inflammatory bowel disease, you know, I would follow them up from that, you know, fertile stage or, you know, from contraception to pregnancy to, to postpartum. So that was very, it's always nice to see them go through that journey, especially when they're living with a, a chronic illness. By the way, for the diagnosis and treatment, I'm taking most of my talk from the uh, guidelines, European guidelines and American Gastroenterology uh, Association, which is we, the ECHO, which is the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization, and the American Gastroenterology Association. So I'll put the guidelines in our show notes as well. So if anyone's interested to read these general guidelines, we'll put a link uh, in the show notes and people can have access to that. Well, look, I think, again, from the nutritional management of Crohn's disease, we can talk talk about it right before the treatment, although at the end of the day, it coincides with that, right? So I think just like you said, once a person has been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a part of their treatment is actually to see a dietitian or a nutritionist. Now, just a little disclaimer is that every individual with Crohn's disease is unique and what works for one person may not work for another. And that personalized nutrition plans are extremely important and they're developed in collaboration with your specialist dietitian because it needs to take into account things like your own individual triggers if we're dealing with any nutritional deficiencies and your overall health goals. Also, the other thing that will, will drive the type of dietary approach is whether you are, you know, if the disease is active or if it's in remission. So if you have a flare-up or not. So 
all these points dictate uh, how we're going to approach the dietary side of things. Now, I'm going to approach the topic of nutrition and Crohn's disease without going into some special considerations like surgery or bowel resections, because I mean, maybe dad, as you walk us through down yep. the line, when we talk to treatment, you might need surgery, correct? So this is very specialized. We have to stress about this as well, because, and let us know about the dietitian or diet, because a lot of patients, they, they tell me what to eat. If he's in good in flare or active yeah. disease, or during remission. This is what to explain to the patient how can he behave during these periods. Exactly. So this is why I always say it's it's a little difficult for perhaps this episode to really give, you know, go into detail because also there's a subgroup of patients who may require something called enteral nutrition or tube feeding or even parental nutrition. So that's feeding straight into your veins. And that's generally done in a hospital setting. So perhaps they've been admitted to hospital. So that's a whole other topic for discussion that warrants like two separate episodes. But maybe just a quick point and then we can go into treatment and then i can look at you know maybe i'll mention these two points then we can go into the, some treatment options and then what i can do is i can cover some key nutrient considerations for people with Crohn's disease but one thing that i wanted to highlight is that there's a very high risk of malnutrition when it comes to inflammatory bowel disease so anyone diagnosed with ibd regardless whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease they should be screened for malnutrition at the time of diagnosis and then afterwards on a regular basis. Now, the other thing that we also see is that IBD patients are more prone to muscle loss. And Dad, I know you mentioned initially that unintentional weight loss. Now, because they're in an inflammatory state, but also there are other potential reasons, whether it's because of a poor or unbalanced nutrition, so loss of appetite, foods triggering their symptoms, making them worse. There's a higher rate of protein turnover as well because of that inflammatory state. So their body tries to, you know, to make up for the excess energy that's being burned because of the active disease. And there's also this gut loss of nutrients leading to malabsorption, especially during the active phase or flare-ups. And then you've got the side effects of the different medications and the treatment approaches. So I just wanted to kind of mention these two crucial points because this is why you have to see a dietitian as soon as you've been diagnosed with IBD. Now, before we go into the key nutrient considerations, Dad, I'm just going to put it back to your court and maybe walk us through how, how are we treating Crohn's disease? We have to treat patient as considering all aspects of his or her life, the diet, stress, habits, all aspects of the life of the patient. And we have to discuss with the patient about what's the goal of treatment. What's the why I'm treating the patient and what's my goal? But I explained to the patient there is two things. From the patient perspective, I want him or her to have a good life free of symptoms. The lifestyle should be improved to near normal. The other goal is from doctor perspective. I want to normalize my patient's inflammatory markers, which are the CRP, calprotectin, ferritin, platelets. And I want to achieve mucosal healing. What do you mean by mucosal healing in normal words or simple words? When I do the colonoscopy, I want to see the lining or the mucosa 
as normal as it can be. Uh, we can classify this to something, to grades or something, but the mucosa or the lining should look normal as much as we can. And also, if we are, want to be more optimistic, to have the histological normalization, what do I mean by this? The, when I take biopsy from the lining, the the doctor of the seeing this biopsies, he should say that it is no inflammatory uh, cells or something like this. It's a bit difficult, but this is our course, as much as we can. And that is possible? It is possible in many cases, yes. Okay. But thing is we want to maintain this possibility this maintain this mucosal hearing it's a bit difficult this way and you know there is no one size fits all for treatment of crohn's disease and whatever the approach you choose may change over time as well because the body and the disease adapt and evolve and it is a progressive illness so it is every now and then we can change medication. So that's why it's important to continue to follow up with your doctor on a long-term. So you develop a relationship, a professional relationship with your patients for a very long time. Yeah, this this the way it should be. Yeah. And and we have to explain to our patients that there is no cure. What I mean by cure, cure means if I treat this disease and I stop medication, it will not come back. So we don't have this in Crohn's disease. So we are aiming to, there's a lot of trials and studies to achieve this. Hopefully we can, one day we can do it. However, there is a good treatment available and they make the impact of the disease as minimal as possible. This is our aim. Another point to discuss is there is no way at this stage to stop treatment. That was going if, to be my question. I think one of the common questions is, can I stop treatment if I feel okay? At this stage, we don't have this luxury. There is something called stopping rules, stopping rule, but we, we uh, till now, it's not very valid point because in many studies, they stop and after maybe one month, one year, the disease care again. So it is better to listen to your doctor and discuss everything with him and don't stop the treatment by yourself. That's a very important point. Yeah. And the other thing is the diet is very important. You may find that certain foods can trigger and flare the disease. So you want to talk to your doctor and the registered dietitian about all diet you can the, the all the ways food. basically just to ensure that your body's getting what it needs but also understanding what works for you and what what doesn't and i think you can, just like i mentioned before that there's just like you said dad there's no one size fits all approach we can about the diet as well you can what do you want to say for patients if the patient is crohn's disease so perhaps i can split my part into two so one or initially what I wanted to maybe just touch up on is the key nutrient considerations for patients with Crohn's disease. Now, as I said 
There's absolutely no one-size-fits-all approach, and I'm not going to go into great detail because it's very unique to the patient. But when we're looking at specific nutrients, the first thing that we look at is protein. So protein is extremely crucial for tissue repair and maintenance. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of patients with inflammatory bowel disease can be prone to muscle loss. That can be due to, as I said, the malabsorption, the inflammation, loss of appetite, not having a balanced diet. So it's really, really essential that they do consume enough protein distributed throughout the day. Generally speaking, the pro, you know a person with Crohn's disease protein requirements is not so different than those of a healthy population. But again, because there are all these hurdles or roadblocks, whether it's the loss of appetite, whether it's the the malabsorption that's happening. So I believe that sometimes there are certain times where the requirements are increased. So when we're looking at your protein-rich foods, again, I really try to focus on anti-inflammatory sources. So for my patients to try to keep them, again, if they were to consume red meat, it's not as frequently. So I would say once a week or once a fortnight, but I really try to focus on your anti-inflammatory fats like those found in fish or marine sources if you do consume animal fats, eggs and plant-based sources like tofu, for example, soy and legumes, your beans, lentils, and chickpeas. And there's always, again, well, we can talk about fiber there, but the different types of fibers and their forms will change or can change depending on whether you're going through a flare-up or not. So that tends to be from the protein perspective. Now, when we're looking at specific vitamins and minerals, I would say Vitamin B12 deficiency can be quite common. I'm not sure, Dad, if this is something that you test quite frequently with your patients. Yes, vitamin B12 and vitamin D as well. We exactly. Both, yeah. So we need to make sure that their vitamin B12 stores are topped up because if there's any sort of malabsorption in the small intestine, that can lead to B12 deficiency. So a lot of the time, supplements or B12 injections or shots may be necessary. Now, regarding vitamin D, again, patients with Crohn's disease may have a higher risk of vitamin D deficiency because of the malabsorption. So we either look at, you know, encouraging safe sun exposure, and then supplementation may be recommended depending on where their levels are. And then there's a whole range of different B vitamins, for example, like folate. Folate is a B vitamin and certain Crohn's medications, I know I know you're going to cover them yeah. briefly, Dad, is that certain medications can interfere with the absorption of certain nutrients and folate is one of them. So you need to make sure that you're monitoring and you're supplementing as needed and as required. So I always say just make sure that you're testing, again, not too regularly, but monitoring your, your levels at least once every you know three to six months depending on the stage of your condition. Now, other minerals that we're looking into are things like iron, for example. So the chronic bleeding, the inflammation, and the reduced absorption can obviously lead to iron deficiency anemia. So again, iron supplements or infusions may be prescribed. So one thing that we go through with our clients as well is just making sure that they have a nice range of different sources of iron coming from food and not relying so much on just your heme sources of iron. So your heme sources of iron are those that are the ones that are found in meat and chicken and so on. But we do know that 
heme iron found in red meat, for example, in large amounts may actually be inflammatory and not anti-inflammatory. So you need to be careful from that perspective. So there's a lot of different plant sources that you can get your iron sources, your iron foods from, but you need to make sure that you're combining them with vitamin C to help absorption. And again, this is where your dietitian will help formulate a plan to make sure that you're including all these sources. Then the next mineral is calcium. That's very important, the calcium as well. well, Why would you say that, dad? Because sometimes we're using a steroid or, uh, but we don't use a steroid for a long time, but we, we, uh, the, the calcium should be tested as well because even the absorption uh, during with Crohn's disease will be affected. So it's important to test about and to test for calcium. And sometimes we give calcium supplement. Exactly. Because one of the side effects, depending, you know, this goes back to the medication as well. Sometimes the medication can interfere with the absorption of certain nutrients or increase their losses, basically, or impact, for example, the health of your bones. So this is why you need to make sure that you are including calcium-rich foods as part of your diet and not just from dairy, because some patients or clients with IBD might have temporary lactose intolerance. And this is where, you know, we can switch to lactose or not even temporary. Sometimes it's permanent depending on the site of inflammation. Um, So we would opt for either plant-based sources, let's say of dairy alternatives, or we can even look at lactose-free options as well. The other important nutrient consideration, as I probably mentioned, is when we're looking at your protein choices, um, it comes to the different types of fats and foods. So omega-3 fats, these are the type of fats that have an anti-inflammatory effect and can help at least ease or manage inflammation and Crohn's disease. So when we're looking at sources, these things like salmon, mackerel, um, sardines, and trout, and then flax seeds, walnuts, and chia seeds are also good plant sources of omega-3 fatty acids. Now, a nutrient yeah. that can be quite problematic for some people, depending on whether they are experiencing a flare-up or not, is fiber. And I think there was also a lot of controversy around fiber because fiber should help protect our gut lining. Now, again, depending on whether we're dealing with active disease or remission, this is where you start playing around with the types of fiber and the amount of fiber that you should be consuming. I know I've spoken about fiber so much throughout this podcast, but I would really encourage you to work closely with with a dietitian just to see what is a sweet spot, what is the right amount of fiber that you should be consuming that you know corresponds with your symptoms. So sometimes it's very we... important, Sandra, yeah, because some people they just take a lot of fiber. When you tell them to take fiber, and they don't know the uh, exact amount of fiber, sometimes the a lot of fiber can cause problems as well. So exactly, we too to... much can be a bad thing, and this is where I always say it's really important to really listen to your body, look at your symptoms, and address it accordingly. So perhaps just for a temporary period of time, you might need to go on a low bulky diet or a low residue diet, but that doesn't mean you have to eliminate fiber completely. So perhaps we're going to cut out some raw foods just temporarily and focus on a selection of cooked vegetables. This is just an example. 
Another thing is nuts and seeds. You know, if you're going through a flare up, I would say rather than cut them out completely, you can perhaps focus on nut butters instead or seed butters. So you don't need to completely eliminate it unless it's medically justified. Now, there are certain instances, as I mentioned earlier, where if you're dealing with a very problematic gut because of the inflammation and the flare-up that perhaps is not functioning properly and needs a bit of rest, this is where we start considering different forms of nutrition support. So we might need to give your gut a little bit of a rest and perhaps a liquid diet with, I think I might've mentioned this in the last episode when we spoke about an elemental diet. So this is when it's a liquid diet where the foods are really, really broken down into things like, you know, your your sugars, your amino acids, your fats are broken down significantly where it doesn't add that extra pressure on your gut to break them down. That would be one option. The other option, again, only if indicated that there are circumstances where we might need to start tube feeding. Now, this is a whole other topic, but it is not a straightforward path and you might need to experience different approaches as well. Now, dad, you mentioned trigger foods. I think this is one thing that is also highly individualized and we get clients to at least keep a diary for seven days, you know, seven days to two weeks, just to see if we can identify any patterns or specific foods that trigger or exacerbate their symptoms. So for some people, it might be raw fruits, Others, it might be spicy foods, uh, it could be caffeine, uh, it could be high fat foods. So there's a whole range of things that yeah, are that, considered individual triggers. That's right. That's why it is important to have a dietitian as a part of management of Crohn's disease. How about the low food map diet, Sandra? Is it, uh, does it help or? We actually do not have any conclusive evidence to support one type of diet. So actually there is no, you know, Crohn's disease diet or an oral Crohn's disease diet. Funny enough, anyone that's been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, I can guarantee that they've already explored different dietary approaches, including a whole range of elimination diets to manage their symptoms. So this is why I really need to emphasize that the effectiveness of a specific elimination diet can vary among person to person, so among individuals, and what works for one person may not work for another. So one of the most commonly tried elimination diets is something that I've already explored in the last episode when we're talking about SIBO is that specific carbohydrate diet. So this specific carbohydrate diet, there's really not enough evidence to actually support its use. So it's been kind of advocated as a diet that can help all gut conditions. It really restricts the consumption of some complex carbohydrates. So like say grains and cereals, Um, it reduces certain sugars and The issue is if you're already at a risk of malnutrition, you should be very careful when it comes to approaching any elimination diet. So that would be one diet that some clients have tried in the past. Others might have eliminated gluten. Some might have eliminated dairy. Now, when it comes to the low FODMAP diet, again, some, it's a small percentage of people with Crohn's disease have reported symptom improvement when they've reduced the amount of fermentation in their gut. So again, we've spoken about the low FODMAP process in detail. You can revisit even our last episode 
when I've spoken about the low FODMAP diet. But again, it is not specific to inflammatory bowel disease. So this is why it's really tricky when you're de- you know that we we do have these general guidelines that we need to be very mindful of yeah. but there's not a standard approach when it comes to Crohn's disease because again you said it's progressive and it can change you know whether you're in remission whether you're going through an active flare up your approach is going to be different That's true this even for medication as well because maybe we'll t- we'll give you an you example You can start later. I was going to say yeah. so how so what are the most common medications that you would use for Crohn's disease, Dad? The types of medication for Crohn's disease, we'll talk about briefly about each one. The first group, which is not commonly used with the in Crohn's disease now, it's called 5-ASA, which is amino uh, cell slate. It's given as a tablet and suppositories and uh, sachets, but before we used to use it, but now it's very, very rarely used and uh, almost we don't use it in Crohn's disease, but it is used widely in uh, RCF colitis. The other group, which is the corticosteroid, this we call it steroid. This is a very important drug. We use it only during the active or acute attack to induce remission, not as a maintenance, because there's a lot of very long list of side effects. So we, we use it only for remission, at least maximum two months or six weeks, and then it will taper away to have another drug which maintain the remission when we are when we reach to the end. So steroids are only used short term. These are not yes. it's not a long term part of a treatment plan. Yes, that's we have to emphasize this and we have because some patients some patients they are used to have good response with the steroid and even sometimes they they, they use it by themselves when they get abdominal pain or frequent area or something, they can take it over the counter and they use it. It's very dangerous behavior just because it will, if get used to it, sometimes you cannot get the patient off the steroid. Okay. And the idea of the recent medication is remission free, free without steroid. Okay. So, we have to be very careful. After this, we have to uh, group of drugs, we call them immune modulator. And this medication, they reduce the immune system activity, lowering the inflammation in your digestive tract, but they sometimes paired with the biologics. And sometimes we give biologic, which we'll talk about it later, and together with the immune modulator to have a good remission and maintain the remission. So you combine different types of medications together. Yes, immune modulator with biologic and three specific uh, biologic which okay. should give with them immune modulator to maintain the remission. The, the usually the immune modulator they are giving most of them they are giving orally, and there is about uh, one, two, three four of them. I yep. don't think there is no need to 
to give the names of this. No, and this God, I don't. I love <laughs> okay. And uh, the uh, uh, the other group is the antibiotic. Sometimes to start with, we can give a course of antibiotic if there is combined infection with this. So again, the, antibiotics are only indicated if there's an yeah. active infection going yeah. on. Then we come to the biologics. What's the biologics? This is the newest class of Crohn's disease. Medication, and this is also most promising. There are a lot of, uh, every now and then we, uh, FAD approved a new drug, which is act differently and with the more safe and more efficacy. These drugs, they are called biologics because they are made from naturally occurring materials that can put the brakes on inflammation-causing proteins. We have, from this biologic, we have three classes. The first class, which is about, I don't know, maybe two decades or something before, and uh, under this class, we have uh, about uh, one, two, three, about four drugs. Yeah. Okay, and most of them, they are injectable. They are all injectable, but some of them, they give under the skin, we call it subcutaneous, and the other one, they give it intravenous, and they have to uh, to be in a hospital during the uh, giving the course, the, the infusion. So and with the infusions, so this is where they would have the, their treatment plan, and they've got cycles, right, of the specific biologics that they're taking so for example how how every how often do they have to take when we start medication? when we start this medication we give course that induction some and first day after two weeks and after six weeks and mm-hmm. then according to the type of drugs we either there is some of them they are giving every two months there are some of them they are giving every Eight weeks or uh, two months, it's the same eight yeah. weeks or three months. <laughs> yeah. And some of them, which one of them is sub Q, subcutaneous, it is given every two weeks. And the patient, uh, he knows how to give it to himself. This is the, uh, the first class. The second class, which act differently, we have about, uh, about three, three or four drugs. One of them is you can give. To start with, you can give it intravenous infusion, and then we tend to to give it subcutaneous. And the others, some of them, they are giving by infusion as well. All right. So my question is, like, how do you choose the right medication, or how do you choose the right treatment? It depends on the site of the disease. It depends on the patient response. It depends on the activity of the disease. And because in Crohn's disease, we can be and sometimes we can uh, we can go to the top. We can start with biologic if the patient has got severe or moderate to severe uh, act- active disease. And sometimes we go to start with the give a steroid and then immunomodulator. And so it's very in- individualized. And it changes, just like you said, right? Sometimes yes, it really I, changes depending. Yeah, on... more, uh, most of the patient they can they lose the response for one drug and then they go for the other one which is better, and they go for the other one. And the newest drugs, sometimes they go they act better than the previous ones, and vice versa. Maybe the old one will go, patient will go for in remission for some time. I got one patient, he's on 
but this ulcerative colitis has gone on only on oral medication for the last 25 years. I did colonoscopy for him. 25 years? Yes. Oh, and wow. uh, I, I follow him up closely. And then last February, I did colonoscopy. He was in remission and he has, uh, his histology was good and he was, he was doing very well. And by the way, now the newest drug for Crohn's disease, it is an oral medication, which is fantastic. And they are very, very promising. It's oral medication. You give a course of induction course for three months, and then uh, it's a tablet. So you can take it every day. After okay. this, we lower the dose for, for maintenance. Uh, it's a very promising drug. And the last thing, which for the whole treatment of Crohn's is the uh, stem cell therapy, which is still, it's a promising, but it's under undergoing trials. Another question is that always comes up, regardless of what condition clients or patients have is, can a condition like Crohn's disease be treated without medication? Oh, the short answer is no, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we have to have a lot of adjuvant treatment. Yeah, they said the diet. You said we talked about the diet, and this is very important. The probiotic, I'm not sure it is. Maybe uh, in the future we can uh, we can see will help or not. But it's not yet. Approved it's not standardized it's, exactly. It's not yeah, standardized yeah. treatment it, or yeah, in in some probiotic. Sometimes you give in uh, ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But so there's specific we, strains, and I think we've spoken about probiotics in the past, that not just any probiotic well, over the counter. So it's, 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 not, it's not approved yet as, as a standard management for Crohn's disease. The other thing, the stress, stress management is very important. Uh, because the, the lifestyle, it's very stressful if the patient has got acute or relapse or flare-ups. Do you uh, encourage your clients, or sorry, your patients to yeah. try their best to engage in stress management techniques? We we do as much as possible. It is sometimes that we tell them to have the uh, breathing exercise, the diaphragmatic, diaphragmatic breathing. breathing. Yeah. yeah, it might help. Uh, regular exercise is very important as well. And uh, it, it will make the patient feel better and feel his lifestyle is, is is getting better. Sleep is very important. And the other things, which is the yoga, the uh, meditation, all these things might will help the patient to go through the lifestyle of improving his lifestyle with Crohn's disease. I didn't talk about the side effects. There's a long list of side effects. We we talk about all the side effects with the patient of this one. But not everybody has got the side effects. And when you see the probability of side effects with the response of treatment, so most of the patient, they, uh, they will prefer to be treated. And the other point I did talk about is surgery. Surgery in Crohn's disease uh, in in many a few patients or some percentage yeah. of patients in the uh, course of this they have to do some sort of surgery. 
And by surgery, more, we're talking about resecting a part of their... A part of, yeah. And we, we're trying our best not tract. to go this, but uh, sometimes it is the only way. But it depends on the patient himself. Many patients, they never had, or they never uh, need surgery, but some of them they need. So I think, I mean, this is a nice way to wrap things up, not just you know, focusing on the medical side of it, but that even with any gut condition, that these four pillars that I've always advocated for, you know, mind, movement, nutrition, and sleep are crucial part of any gut conditions treatment, just like you highlighted. Dad, before we close off the episode today, can you maybe share a success story to give some people hope? Uh, I think uh, what's come to my mind now, the one specific patient, I think she's uh, now, uh, it's like a friend, a family friend or <laughs> daughter or something like this, because she's now 33 years old and I'm treating her when she was 13 years old, when she came from the pediatric to our oh, hospital in Rashid Hospital. That's yeah. a long time. Yes. And when you go through her, she had... It's an example of all the medications. So she's gone through everything. Everything. Everything to start with. We got steroids, repeated courses of steroid, and with immune modulator, and then uh, immune modulator alone. And then after this, she had one biologic, which it was uh, sub-Q, subcutaneous for some years. And then... We changed it to her one of the uh, intravenous one. And after the fourth injection, she had a collapse and she had very severe reaction from this drug. And she went to the ICU and we stopped it, of course. So we, we changed her to some other drug and maintained for a few years. In some point, she had an obstruction and she has to be operated. So she had surgery as well. She had surgery as well, yes. And after surgery, you had we put her on maintenance of uh, uh, biologic, and she went about two or three biologic till now. She is very recent one, which is intravenous, and she she traveled to Egypt for the last four and stayed one year. During this year she stopped her medication because of the availability yeah. and she has no symptoms no evidence of flirting now but of course she's back to Dubai and then uh, she will do a work complete workup and most likely she will carry on with the another biologic which is most likely will let her to take one uh, subcutaneous one which is uh, practical for her because she's very active. She's successful. She's a pharmacist and she's doing a lot of uh, successful job now. All right. So, she, you know, she, she's gone through everything from a very young age to now. Yeah. and a, a to Z, yeah. <laughs> exactly, from A to Z. And I have a very strong suspicion that I might have seen that specific patient yes. at some point. Okay. I, okay. <laughs> All right. Because I think I might have remembered that story. So wrapping things up, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know it is quite specific, and this is why we're really trying to cover things 
you know, literally from A to Z when it comes to gut health. And just a little reminder is you can submit your questions to us. I have put our email address in the show notes that we can share at the beginning of every episode. So make sure you tune in again next week where we're going to cover the second part of this series. And we're going to talk about ulcerative colitis. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.